stages. It's this kind of universal scope. Here's how everything was created. And then the problems that we see are global. And here's how God is dealing with these global issues. And then in 12, there's a, there's a focus to Abraham and his children, his descendants, who become the nation of Israel. From Genesis 12 on through the rest of the Old Testament, that's really the focus is on Abraham and his family, the nation of Israel. And so what we're going to look at today is the bridge between those two things. We're going to bridge between this primeval, huge, cosmic, global stuff and then this one specific family with Abraham who we'll start looking at probably after Easter. There's four sections we're going to look at. Two of them uh, I'm actually not going to read. It's genealogies. You don't mind not hearing me butcher those names, I'm sure. This is Genesis 10. So this is Noah's family tree. There's about 70 nations listed, 70. That's one of those symbolic numbers in uh, Hebrew completeness. In uh, 9-1, Genesis 9-1, when Noah gets off the ark, God says to him and his, says to his kids, really, it's to his, his three sons and their wives, y'all be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the earth. And Genesis 10 is where they all go. And so Genesis 10 has got lists of people and places and nations. and says, here's how the earth was filled. If you'll show that next one. This is around where everybody went, Africa, Asia, Europe. It's this spreading out and this filling of the earth in obedience to what God said uh, in Genesis 9. The only person in Genesis 10 who gets any press at all, his name is Nimrod, if you wondered where that came from. There you go. So um, he's, he gets some ink just because he founded some cities that would later become pivotal in Israel's history. They're really enemies of Israel. He founded Babylon, and he founded Nineveh. He was a great warrior, and he, it's, it's, not ex, it's not explicit in the Bible, but it appears that he was rebellious uh, towards the Lord. And he's kind of a picture of what these nations would later become, what these uh, cities and these countries that he, or nations that he founded would become. He seems to embody as well this kind of arrogant, independent, ruthless uh, way of living life. So that's in Genesis 10. What we're going to read is Genesis 11. This is the Tower of Babel story. It actually chronologically occurs before Genesis 10. It's the context it's, or the impetus for this spreading out and this scattering. So Genesis 10, here's where everybody went. The Tower of Babel is, this is how they got sent to all of those places. So verse 1 of chapter 11. Now the whole world have one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Shinar is one of the places that Nimrod went. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That's why it's called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So a couple of things going on here. You see, I think there's kind of two impulses in the people at this point. They have this impulse for themselves, and you can see that in a couple of ways. They're, they're looking to promote themselves, the language there, let us build a city for ourselves, let us make bricks, let us make a name for ourselves. 
There's this self-centered, this egocentric thing in them. They're also looking to protect themselves. They said, hey, we don't want to be scattered. They settle in the plain, even though God said, hey, I want you all to fill the earth. They don't do it. They're being disobedient. They're living independent of them, rebellious. He says, fill the earth. They say, no, we're happy here. We're just going to settle here. Let's build this city so that we won't be scattered, really opposing what God's desire is for them. So you've got this impulse for themselves. I think there's also an impulse towards God in them. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has put eternity in the hearts of everyone who he's created. There's this thing in everyone that says, I'm, there's, there's something more. There's something more, there's something bigger than me, and I want to connect with that. And you see that here. They're trying to build this tower. This is probably what it is. It's called a ziggurat. You see these. This one's before the time of Jesus. It's an ancient one, and I think it's in Iraq is where it is. It's basically just a big building with steps. The idea is saying, hey, we're going to climb up. God, God's, God's live up in the sky, so I'm going to climb up to meet with them. I think that was the heart of these guys. In Babel. They weren't necessarily saying we're going to depose God and we're going to become God. They were saying, hey, we want to be with him, and so this is how we can do that. They're obviously doing that independent of him. They're doing that, their fallenness, their sinfulness has warped this desire, that, that this Ecclesiastes 3 desire that says God desires, that God has put eternity in everyone's hearts, this thing that says I'm reaching out for something more. They just take matters into their own hands. And that's what they do. And so what God does, his response may seem weird to us. Like, is he, is he intimidated by them? Is he threatened? What's this whole thing about people being able to do whatever they want? I think what God is doing is he's remembering Genesis 6. If you remember when we looked at that, it says, every inclination of the people's hearts was only evil all the time. We said it was, the, it was a train wreck. The whole civilization was going downhill. There was no parking break. There's eight people who make it on the ark because there's only eight people who are righteous. Nobody else even wanted to get on the ark. They were wicked thoroughly. And so God had to cleanse the whole earth with the flood. And he sees, I think, that happening again. Um, Business word, synergy. I think there's a negative synergy here where it's one plus one equals negative ten for these people. Their fallenness is like bouncing off of each other. And And it's increasing exponentially the wickedness of what they can do. They're all together. They're all created in the image of God, so they've got some intelligence, some creativity, some drive, some resourcefulness. All of those things are being warped, and God sees where it's going. And he's already said, I'm not going to wipe the earth out again. I'm not going to send another flood. So what he does, rather than having to cataclysmically cleanse the earth again, he says, I'm just going to nip it in the bud. I'm just going to spread y'all out. I'm going to confuse your languages. You're not going to be able to work together. We're going to, we're, we're just going to end this now. I'm going to, before you even get started going down this road again where it's only evil all the time, I'm going to stop you back here. So it's really his mercy where he steps in at Babel. It's to keep them from kind of moving back in that direction that we saw in Genesis 6 that um, caused him to send the flood in the first place. He's trying to keep, he's saving them from themselves. He sees the direction that they're going and he's trying to preserve them. From that, So what does that mean for us? We're not building sandcastles in our backyard trying to reach heaven. The thing for me as I read that is this, there's this picture. There's an irony there. These people are trying to build a stairway to heaven. And God says, what's his response? Is he comes down. That's the irony. They're trying to get to him and he steps down to them. Twice it says God comes down. And that's the picture to me of who God is. He's a missionary 
God. He's a God who comes to us. He doesn't say, I'm remote and removed. I hope you can figure out how to make it to me. If you look at religions around the world, most of them are based on this idea that says, I'm going to figure out how to get to God. I'm going to build one of those things. Whatever that looks like, I'm going to build one of those things that's going to get me to God. And the catch is usually whatever's at the top of the stairs looks a whole lot like us, just prettier. That's who we put up there. That's what idolatry is. We put something up there and we create stairs to get there. And Christianity comes completely different. What Gabriel says to Mary is, you're going to have a son and he's, you're going to, he's Emmanuel, God with you. The whole doctrine of the incarnation, this idea of the son of God taking on flesh and becoming a man in Jesus. God says, you don't have to try to find me. I'm going to come to you and reveal myself to you. Jesus is the good shepherd who goes after the lost sheep. So for me, I'm thinking of that and saying, if God is a missionary God and I am his follower, then I've got to learn to be a missionary as well. I've got to be willing to go after lost sheep. Jesus walked a thousand miles in three years. His invitation to his disciples was what? Follow me. And he meant that literally because he's walking every day somewhere. If they didn't actually follow after him, then they got left behind. The invitation is the same to us. It's not believe certain things about me. It's follow me. I've got stuff to do and I want you to do it with me. And so for, for me, I'm thinking of that and I can put myself here in Genesis 11 and say my tendency is to settle also. God, God told them, fill the earth. Go everywhere. Fill it. And they settled in a plane because it was comfortable and they were all together. God says to us, Jesus says to us in Matthew 28, go into all the world. Make disciples of all nations. And we settle. We build our own buildings. And we say, we can meet God here. It's the same thing that they're doing. Our hearts maybe are better in some ways, but it's the same basic idea. God says go, and we say, we're actually okay just to settle here. And if people want to come, that's great. We'll welcome them. That's not what he asked of us. He said go. And we tend to settle. And I'm awful at this. I was thinking the other day, I was at the gym, and I was on my little elliptical thing, and I had in my headphones, which to me is the universal sign that says, don't talk to me. And somebody comes, a friend of mine comes, and he puts up in this elliptical right next to me. I mean, we're, we're this far apart. Here's him, and here's me. We're 18 inches apart. I kept my headphones in, and he started talking, and I kept my headphones in. Like 10 minutes, I've got my headphones in, and he's talking. I did push pause on the music. He didn't see that. But I kept thinking, I don't want to talk to him. He's my friend. I didn't want to talk to him. That's not good. Ten minutes before I take the headphones out. The, de- the next day, this is awful. You can't say this to Pap. So I see my dad there, and I don't go talk to him. I went some. I was like, oh, I was on the machine. I saw him over there. And I was like, oh, I'm, I'm good. Maybe he'll see me when he gets up. That's not, that's not good of me. If you're a guest, you may never come back. So that's, I don't like, like, I'm not a talker. I don't engage people well at all. I don't. And I know that about myself. And none of that is an excuse to say, well, I'm going to settle. I've got to figure out before the Lord, what does it look like for me to, be, to serve a going God? Because I've got to get going then. I don't have to become an extrovert. I don't have to suddenly become the life of the party. I don't have to love talking. I don't have to, none of those things have to happen. But I can't use the fact that I'm introverted as an excuse to not go. And you can't use the fact that you're introverted or that you're busy 
or whatever the excuses are that we have just to say we're going to settle. We've got to figure out what does it look like for us to go. It's interesting. Acts 1.8, Jesus says to the disciples, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Then you're going to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And then what happens is the Holy Spirit falls on the disciples and there's this massive kind of revival. Thousands of people are coming to the Lord. A mega church is formed right there in Jerusalem. It's wonderful if you read Acts 2. It's this picture. We all say, oh, that would be great to have a church like that where there's no need. Everybody's needs are taken care of and they're eating together and they're having communion and they're worshiping and people are being healed and baptized and saved. It's wonderful. And so in Acts 8.1, there's a persecution that comes. Because Stephen, he's the first martyr, is killed. There's a persecution and and all of the people leave. Most people who read Acts would say that was God's trigger for them. He told them to go and they didn't. They were so enjoying what they were doing together in Jerusalem that they missed the point of what they were doing together. Which is there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are never going to come to Jerusalem and experience this great thing that y'all have going. You've got to go to them. And if I can't get you to go because I told you to go, well, here's persecution. Maybe that will drive you out. And Acts 8, 4 says, everywhere they went, the people who were scattered shared the gospel. So I think there's this thing for us. We have this natural tendency to settle because it's comfortable and we enjoy it. We enjoy being with one another. And it's uncomfortable and it's inconvenient to say, I'm going to scatter. I'm going to go. We don't like that. I'm not talking about whether or not you're going on a short-term mission trip. That can be a catalyst for people to begin to see themselves as missionaries, I think. And so I would say, yes, go, but don't think that because you've gone, you can check the box. Wherever God has planted you, the expectation is you're going to be looking for lost sheep, whether that's in China or Cambodia or Smyrna. The expectation is wherever you are that God's planted you there and he's going among those people and he wants you to be going among them as well. But again, most of us tend to settle. My encouragement to you is to recognize that you're following a missionary God. That makes you a missionary. This second genealogy is the back half of chapter 11. Completely different than chapter 10. It's, I would call it a theological genealogy what's happening there jesse if you'll show that this is from noah to abraham so what we're trying to do abram becomes abraham so what moses who wrote genesis is trying to do is he's trying to tie together noah who comes off the ark with abraham who's the father of israel and so he traces that descent through kind of the chosen line which is shem which was one of noah's three sons and you can read about that In chapter 11, for us, what we want to look at is the back half of chapter 9, which explains why Shem. There's Shem, there's Jephath, and there's Ham. So how come God picked Shem as the one through whom his blessing would come? So this is picking up in verse 18 of chapter 9. Sons of Noah, who came out of the ark, were Shem, Ham, and Jephath. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Noah, man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk, and he lay uncovered in his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Jephath took a garment, laid it across their shoulders, and they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from the wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Cain, the lowest of Canaan, the lowest of slaves, 
will, will he be to his brother. So notice, Ham is the one that committed the sin. His son Canaan is the one who's cursed. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Jephath's territory. May Jephath live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Jephath. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years. And then he died. So what's going on here? Culturally, uh, highest value is honor. The biggest sin, taboo, is shame. It's an honor and shame-based culture. You still see this in many uh, Middle Eastern and Eastern cultures where the, the biggest thing you can, the worst thing you can do is to shame yourself or to shame your dad. That's no good. And honor, that's, that's what you want to do is bring honor to your family. That's an, it's an honor and shame culture. We don't connect with that because that's not, those aren't the thing, the axes that our culture revolves around. Huge deal. Fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Ham didn't do any of that. So Noah is disgraced because he's drunk and he's naked in his tent. Ham comes in and rather than covering up his father's disgrace, he broadcasts it. He says something to his brothers about it. He does the opposite of honoring his father. He dishonors him, seems to take some type of pleasure or delight in seeing his father in this position. Two older brothers, there's a contrast. They, they go to great lengths to not even look at their dad. They walk in backwards with the blanket and lay it over him. That's the picture of what it looks like to honor your father and mother in that setting. Ham does the exact opposite. We say, well, the response seems completely disproportional to what happened. I would say what we saw is a snapshot of their character. It's not an aberration. Ham wasn't some great upstanding guy who had a bad night. That's a picture of who he is. It's just a, it's a microcosm of Ham's character and Shem's character. And so based on that, Noah wakes up. Somehow he hears what's going on, which may mean Ham told more people than just his brothers. But he hears what happened, and then he responds. And I think what he's responding with is a prophecy. I don't think he says, cursed is Canaan, therefore Canaan is cursed. I think what he's doing is he's seeing down the road what's going to happen with all of these different families. And he can see some of that in the character of their parents. Now, children are not punished for the sins of their parents. Ezekiel 18 says the soul that sins will die. We're each responsible for our own hearts, but we know our parents have a deep and profound influence on us. And I think in this case, you've got like father, like son, because Noah doesn't curse all of Ham's kids. It's just one. It's Canaan. And what he sees, I think, kind of prophetically, is he sees the character that's in Ham is going to be in Canaan. And in that chart that we looked at a few uh, slides ago, all of the descendants of Canaan wind up being enemies of Israel. It's the people who Israel struggles with for hundreds and hundreds of years. And I think Noah can see that down the road and says, this is what's going to happen. And if you read the Old Testament, all of those tribes wind up being subject to Shem's descendants, Israel at some point in their history. So I don't necessarily think that Noah saying it made it so, if that makes sense. I think what is happening is God's given Noah a window into what's going to happen in the future, and he's reporting to them, here's what's going to happen. And the reason Canaan is cursed is because his character is the same as his dad's. They have the same character there, and in that Ham had multiple children, and this one particular in Canaan, we see that wickedness playing out in his descendants for hundreds and hundreds of years. So what does that look like for us? I want to try to talk a bit, I'm going to close with this, and hopefully we'll be okay. The dangers of alcohol. Um, I've had several people over the last 15 months come to me and say, I'm struggling with this. They're not 
full-blown alcoholics by any means, but alcohol is, drinking is putting them on a bad road. And they're recognizing it is great, and they're coming and talking with me about it, but it surprised me for whatever reason. And so I want to talk, and I've just never spoken about it publicly, so I want to take advantage of this uh, to talk about it. Noah's, he, Noah invented winemaking, and it's fine. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you can't drink. The Bible does say you can't get drunk. That's Ephesians 5.18. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. You three, y'all can never drink. You three, so y'all... You're, but the rest of you who are over 21, here's the thing. You, it's okay, biblically. Like, there's, there's nothing in there. I think the, the contrast to make is drunk, filled with wine and filled with the Spirit that Paul seems to imply you can't be both at the same time. You can't have two masters. Only one can be in control of you at any one time. And if wine is in control of you, then the spirit is not. And so there's this, there's this thing there that we need to watch out for. Now, I'm in a, I'm looking, I think I'm in a very unique position, and I own that. And so I'm going to just kind of give you my background so you can hear where I'm coming from. I've, I've not drank, I've had one sip of beer and probably three sips of wine in my whole life. I don't drink, I never have. And so it's not part of my identity. That's, it's not part of my history. I don't have all these great memories around drinking. My family didn't. So it's, not, it's just not part of my life. I don't like the taste, and I'm too lazy to acquire it. So I don't feel like I'm missing. It would be like if God said, don't drink V8. Okay, I'm out. I mean, that's not hard for me to not, not hard for me at all. I'm not, I'm not giving up anything. And because of my job, there's no social expectation that I'm going to drink. If there's a hundred people at a party drinking and I don't, people just assume it's because I'm a pastor. So there's no social pressure for me at all to ever pick up a glass of alcohol. And I don't believe any of you have probably are in that same situation. It's different for you, and I recognize that. So the things I'm sharing with you are not necessarily easy, and I get that I'm coming from a different spot. I just want to encourage you around these things, um, not even thinking about it from a health perspective or drunk driving or any of that, but just looking at it strictly in terms of your own heart and kind of who's controlling, who, who's got, are you keeping in step with the Spirit, I guess maybe is the easiest way to say it. So a couple of things for you to think about. If you drink alone, my question is why? What are you doing? Are you trying to numb pain? Are you trying to escape from crummy circumstances? Are you rewarding yourself for a good day? Like, what's going on there? If you drink by yourself, ask yourself, why am I doing this? And then my second question, is there a better way of doing that? If you're drinking to numb pain, it's, it doesn't work. A, a, a bottle, a, a can of beer becomes a six-pack, becomes whiskey. Like, you can't because you're not dealing with the issue, which is the pain. You're just putting a Band-Aid on it. It doesn't work. And so if that's what's going on, let's deal with the pain first. And then you can see if it's okay for you to drink by yourself. So that would be one thing. If that's a habit that you're in, that's something that's regular for you. You wait till you're the only one up in the house and you drink or whatever that looks like. I would encourage you to really think through and say, why am I doing this? And then in public, well, why do you drink in public? Do you drink because everybody else is and you feel like you need to fit in? Do you drink because um, it loosens you up and you're more fun when you drink? Do you drink because there's things about yourself you don't like and when you drink it kind of uh, 
take some of those edges off? Um, do you drink because you feel like, well, these are occasions where you should do these types of things, everybody? Like, I don't know, but my encouragement to you again is to think through that and say, are those good reasons? If you're drinking because everyone else is, that's not a good reason to do anything. If you're drinking because there are things you don't like about yourself, well, let's deal with the things you don't like about yourself or why you don't like those things. Alcohol is not going to help. If you're drinking to loosen yourself up, I think there's probably some other ways of doing that as well. Again, I'm not saying don't because the Bible doesn't say don't. If it was that clear, it would be easy and we could stand up. But I'm not going to give you a legalism where there's not one in the Bible. The rule is don't get drunk. And when it comes to drinking, the expectation is that as a Christian, you're going to follow the leading of the Spirit in that. So my encouragement to you is to kind of think that through. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.15, the Corinthian church is a, they're a train wreck in a lot of ways. And Paul is constantly having to battle them on all of these issues. And one of the issues is their freedom. Well, we can do whatever we want. And he says, yeah, sure, you can do whatever you want. But in verse 15, he says, but is everything beneficial? The implied answer is no. But we can do whatever we want. And he says, yes, but don't be mastered by anything. And I think that's a piece for us when it comes to alcohol is, are you being mastered by it? And you may say, I'm not an alcoholic, but in those, in those times, are you being mastered by alcohol? Is it running the show in some level? If you tell me that drinking doesn't affect you, I'm going to call you a liar. It's, that's denial. I had a friend in college who said, I drink because it makes me a better driver. I focus more on the road because I know I've had something to drink. Then why don't we all, before we get... No, that's just stupid. That's a rationalization. And you may, if you're doing that, if you're not, if you're not being honest about the fact that alcohol affects your judgment or affects you in some way, that's denial. You might not be as silly as an 18-year-old was when he said that. But it's the same type of thing. So that's part of that is I don't want to be mastered by anything. So you've got to know what your limit is. If it's one glass or one beer or whatever, you've got to, or whatever the number is, you've got to know what that is. And you don't want to be mastered by that. And there's not, like, there's not this list of occasions where it's okay to get drunk. When you turn 21 or when you graduate or on an anniversary or when you turn 40, like those aren't, Okay, these are okay. Like, it's never okay to steal. It's never okay to have an affair. We don't have these special days where we can indulge. And the same thing is with drinking. It's not like God said, Paul says, don't get drunk unless it's a really special occasion. That's not the case for us. And so what does it look like for you to not be mastered by that? Second thing, Romans 14 and 15 talks a lot about the choices that we make and how those impact other people and kind of the catchphrase is, I don't want to be a stumbling block. I don't want to get in the way of anybody else's relationship with the Lord. And so that would be something else I would encourage you to think about, particularly publicly. What does that look like for you? I had some friends, um, I've been doing this for about 20 years, so I've had friends who've been in youth ministry for different times, and most of them, when they were in youth ministry, said, I'm not going to have a drink in public because I don't want any of my students to see me drinking. It's just, it's not worth it. It's not worth it what it communicates to them. Uh, as kids who are under 21 and are probably wrestling with that in their own school. And so I don't know what it looks like for you to say, you know, I don't want to be a stumbling block for other people. And that may be different in different social situations or different in different times of your life, but that's a real 
truth in the Bible that says we're part of a body and we need to, we need to consider others. It's not just what I want to do. It's how does what I do affect other people, both people inside and outside of the faith. And so I would encourage you to think through that. Now, if I see you at La Perea tonight and you have a margarita, do you have to put it under the table? No, no. No, not at all. That's not, you don't need to, no, not at all. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying I've, I think I didn't realize how big of an issue alcohol was in our community. For whatever reason, I just didn't know. And I've been made aware over the last year or so that it is. And so I want to, get, I want to address it and say it can move you. In a, whether I'm not even talking about full-blown alcoholism. I'm just talking about people who drink socially, even regularly, it can move you in a bad direction. And you need to be aware, and you need to be honest enough with yourself and the people who love you to say, this is why I drink, and if that's okay, it's okay, and here's my limit, and if you see me going past the limit, then you need to say something. Because there aren't, there's not, there's not times where that is okay. I don't want you to feel condemned, I don't want you to feel guilty, None of those things. I just want you to bring that before the Lord like you bring everything else before the Lord and say, what do you want me to do here? And it may be that what God says is, hey, I want you to just don't just take, take some time off. Take a month and let's see and make sure you're not actually addicted to this stuff. Let's, make, let's go a month and see how you do without drinking at all. And that'll be an, that'll, that will show you how important it is to you. And right now you can use Lent as an excuse if you need to. Seriously, use it as an excuse. Say, I go to this church and they do this dumb thing with Lent where they ask you to give stuff up, and so I gave up alcohol because I didn't think of anything else. It'll let you off the hook till Easter. Most people don't know it ends at Easter, so you could keep going. So anyway, <laughs> just use it. As an, if you need the cover, take the cover. And maybe that God says, no, you don't need to ever pick it up again. Maybe not in this time or not in these people or not this type. I don't know if there's differences between beer and wine and champagne and liquor. I don't know how all that works kind of in your own body and your mind, but maybe... Anyway, all of those things, I just encourage you to bring those things before the Lord so that you can stay in, keep in step with the Spirit, and so that you're never in danger of whatever that looks like from crossing from the line of being filled with the Spirit to being filled with wine. Are we good? Good? Nice. Anybody hear me say that you can't drink ever? No. Do anybody hear me say it's fine to go out and drink as much as you want? No. Okay, we're good. Let me pray. So two things, we moved in two, we had two really different things that we talked about. Both are important. I want to give you a chance to respond to both of them. So let's just pray. God, this alcohol thing, it's an issue in our community. I know for some here it's an issue for them personally, whether that's just because of the social circles that they run in or their history or just for whatever reason. And so, God, I pray if there's any, I just pray for conviction where conviction needs to happen. That's all. In the places where there's no need for conviction, then I pray for freedom for people in those areas. And I pray that all of us would live free, that none of us would be mastered by anything. We would all be led by your Spirit in all things. And God, for any who are in bondage today, I just pray that they would hear freedom is possible. You can be delivered. You don't have to live in chains any longer.
thinking about this missionary thing, God, I pray that we would be men and women individually and corporately who go with you. You're a going God, and I pray that we would be a going people. That we would go to the ends of the earth and the ends of the street. That you would help people like me who are not naturally bent towards relationships, not naturally bent towards people. God, help me, help people like me. Equip us and anoint us. God, I pray that you would think of Jesus in Matthew 9 being stirred with compassion for these crowds who are harassed and helpless. It's from this place of compassion that he then says, send out workers. God, I pray that we would be stirred with that same sense of compassion, not guilt, not obligation, not self-righteousness, but from a place that says, you need grace and I know the source and I want to connect you to him. God, that we would love people love them with this incredible love that you have for us and for them. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll have ministry time, ministry teams here up in the front. We'll pray with you about anything that you have going on. Uh, We'd love the chance to do that and then Bo will dismiss us after this song.